0: Welcome back to the Theopolis podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motz, and I'm the content director here at Theopolis. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Those who participate in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Uh, last week, we began our new series, Walking Through the Book of James. This week, we are joined by Jeff Myers and James B. John. And we are joined once again by Alistair Roberts, who is uh, now back from his honeymoon. We discussed last week that James is written in a specific context and to a specific situation. Christ has come and he has lived and died and been raised from the dead and ascended. He has set up his kingdom. And now things are supposed to be better. The kingdom of righteousness is supposed to be coming and reigning, and things are supposed to be improving. And yet, Jewish Christians, these who are coming into the church, this first crop of Christians who are mostly Jews, are now uh, being persecuted and they're being dispersed. And now James or Jacob, who we looked at last week as being likely James, the son of Zebedee, is writing to build up these Jewish Christians in truth and in practice as they are dispersed all over the place. So today we're going to begin looking at the text of the book of James. But before we uh, jump into that, we wanted to at least briefly touch on the structure of the book. Um James is often thought of as the New Testament proverbial book or the New Testament book of Proverbs. And so one issue there right out of the gate is that we don't realize that the book of Proverbs has a deep structure to it. And so we kind of lay that onto the book of James as well and often treat it as, again, just a book of kind of pithy sayings and not having a potential structure to it. So there are a few different strains of thought about the structure of this book. And I think one of the more fascinating ones, it it may or may not work, is that the structure is built around the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, In the first verse or two of the book of James, he says that he's writing to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. And so uh, some have sought to find a structure to the book there as being built around the 12 tribes. So to start off, does that argument hold any weight or open any interesting avenues of interpretation for us? And if not, is there another way to look? at the structure of James that would be more useful for us?
1: Well, I think there's a lot of value in connecting up James' letter, the letter from James here in the New Testament with Jacob from Genesis. I think there there are lots of common themes. James, the New Testament apostle, is writing to a church that needs to mature, and they mature through testing and through suffering. And of course, that is the theme, or one of the themes in Jacob's life in Genesis. So, and Jacob, of course, has 12 sons, and James is writing to the 12 tribes. And so, uh, I mean, there's a a general connection, I think, between James writing to the 12 tribes, his sons, so to speak, he's a father in the faith, he's helping them work through the troubles they're having, so they'll have the right perspective on it, and they'll persevere, and they'll be steadfast, and they'll get through it. The structuring it in terms of the 12 tribes, as I have in the book, page 20 and 21, that comes largely from Steve Jeffrey's sermon series, which I thought he did a, a masterful job at trying to make it work, <laughs> but I find it a little tenuous, and but I don't, I'm curious about what other people think about that.
2: I mean, an idea that I wanted to float, I'd be intrigued to know what you, you guys make of it is, um, it seems to me that in certainly in old Testament literature, there, there are certain texts which are deliberately to some extent decontextualized. So we will have Psalms with a clear superscript that give them a clear historical, uh, context and some prophecies like that as well. Um, but then other prophecies, um, don't have any clear statement as to, you know, which kings reigns they concern, and some psalms don't have a, uh, a superscript. And it feels to me that things like that are done in order to kind of invite the reader to apply them and think about them in more um, uh, in a more generic sense and to apply them to a whole multitude of different situations. And I, I kind of wonder, you know, I Jeff, I find a lot of the stuff that you say to be a very very helpful application to the book of james and yet at the same time i wonder if um the fact that it doesn't make its context um explicit might be to kind of invite us to um to give it that broader application you know i i have some amount of sympathy when you read commentaries and and they say this is sort of just generic free-floating wisdom literature you know I don't think it is on the one hand, but on the other hand, I wonder if it can be helpful to sort of embrace that sense of it in order to broaden its appeal. Um, what, what, what do you guys think of that?
3: I think in the context of the Book of the Twelve, for instance, the what are often called the Minor Prophets, you do see that dynamic where there is often a weak association with any context. It's often unclear what specific events they might be referring to, and there's a lot of in the literature. But throughout the books, you see a deeper and multifaceted reflection upon the day of the Lord emerging from all these different prophecies concerning different events and different prophetic horizons. And when we're dealing with wisdom literature, I think part of the work of wisdom literature is the wisdom to take the proverb, which does not necessarily tell you exactly when to use it and to know when to apply it. And I think a lot of what James is giving us here is wisdom that has similarities with the book of Proverbs and also, I think, within the New Testament, lots of similarities with the Sermon on the Mount in very specific statements that we see that would parallel between the two. Even within the first few verses that we look at here, we see the rejoicing and trials and Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness sake or being perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And then the importance of being perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, the way that you ask God to give you good things. And in the same way as we ask for wisdom and God gives without reproach. So we ask, seek and knock. And those who ask and seek will find it given to them and they will discover it. And when they knock, it will be open to them. And so throughout this book, I think we're seeing similar themes that we find within the Sermon on the Mount applied in a different context there. But I think, as um, Jeff has argued, this has an immediate context. But because it's wisdom literature, I think it has many fitting contexts. And as these sorts of texts are encountered as scripture, I don't think we we should be aware of restricting them to that context. And I don't think Jeff is doing that, but I think um, this is a feature of biblical literature more generally. And so the weakness of explicit connections with context are not necessarily a sign that we've lost some important part of the puzzle. It can be a sign that this applied to the original um, dispersed Jews from Jerusalem, but also it can be applied no less to our contexts.
1: Absolutely right. And I hope I've done a good job of of making that connection throughout the commentary. But I do think that knowing, discerning the riddle of who this was written to and why it was written really helps you make appropriate applications. I mean, it's similar with all the New Testament epistles. They're all written to deal with immediate Pressing issues, and most of the time we can figure that out. So, like for example, Hebrews is written to uh, Hebrew Christians who've been who are just tired. I mean, probably a couple decades after James is written, he, the apostle writes to Hebrews uh, these he, Hebrew Christians who are just tired. It's been decades, and they want to go back. Uh, they're they're tired of this wilderness experience. They want to. They just want to go back to the old ways, and so. He writes to them to to hang on, to hold fast, to don't don't give up. Follow uh, Joshua Messiah into the promised land, and and so when you when you know that that's what's going on, then you can then you can apply it to our day and age uh, and to our times. Christians who just get tired of of uh, the suffering, of the waiting, of the patience, um, and. Yeah, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, but until then, it's difficult. Uh, And so the same thing applies to James uh, in in similar ways, although James is written earlier, I think, when the persecution, the suffering, the being set upon by uh, their former leaders in Jerusalem is just starting. And that just makes them mad. uh, And they think they have to be zealot-like fighters uh, against it. Um, And that makes sense to me that this would be maybe one of their first reactions is, hey, um, what's going on here? We're going to fight back. Um, And James tells them, yeah, don't don't do that. Uh, Be patient. Uh, Remember, as Alistair just said, remember the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and in other places. This the kingdom of God is not going to come in the ways that the zealots think it will.
2: Right, right. That, that makes sense to me. I mean, Jeff, I, I, I wasn't meaning to um, make out that you were taking this overly restrictive um, view of the, uh, the Book of James, you know, this overly context-driven... Um, well, I was
1: personally offended.
2: <laughs> 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 we we can re- remove that and, and take out all the r- rude name-calling once we yeah. release uh, it. We yeah. okay. can't really know. do
3: that anyway. That's, yeah. that's Brian's job, just yeah, well, right.
2: sanitise the conversation. this
1: is my book book. don't disagree with it
2: that's right that i mean to get these 40 minute podcasts we normally have to record about three hours worth of material don't we and then chop out all the insults but but no no I, i mean i i wanted to uh i guess try and reflect on the way in which the authorship and the sort of style of the book of james um kind of itself lends itself to that sort of broader application. And um there was a point you made in your commentary, Jeff, that I found really helpful, which was that when we read the Old Testament, you know, uh a minor prophet, the book of Leviticus or something, um, we're very conscious of the fact that we need to um think about its context, because its context is very foreign to us, a, a context of a a temple cult or, or, or something. And and so we're conscious when we apply it that we need to um start with the context and then sort of reapply it but with the new testament we can sometimes too quickly or too readily assume that it's instantly about our context it's written to sort of 21st century churches and so on and, and so we don't have to um go through that hard sort of contextual thinking and um yeah, as, as you say, we, we can sort of sometimes do that too um, readily in terms of the New Testament.
1: Yeah, good point. Um, hey, Brian, what you you're fascinated by the twelve tribes uh, structure that's laid out by Stephen Jeffrey? What what is it in particular that uh, you you like about that, or that fascinates you?
0: Just that I hadn't come across that before. Um... We at Theopolis deal with chiasm's uh, plenty, which which we have here in the book as well. But to take each of the each of the sons, Reuben and Simeon and Judah and the tribes and to overlay that onto the text, as you mentioned there, it, it may not hold the full weight of the book, but I do think it's a it's a helpful exercise in reading the Bible imaginatively, as we say, and taking the name of James or Jacob and filled with the Spirit playing with the text to see what may be there that we haven't seen before. That's all I meant there.
1: Oh, good. Yeah, I, I agree with that.
0: I think
3: that's one of the more general practices that we have, that we often give out the um, readings that we've worked through for a while, and they have maybe a bit more weight. But a lot of our readings were, are very exploratory, and we're trying to see, do they hold weight And there are suggestive readings like that that I think are worth exploring that maybe we don't have a final um, verdict upon yet.
2: Right. And something that, to my mind, makes that um, idea, you know, exploring the blessings to the 12 tribes, um, something that makes that uh, a nice idea is the fact that a lot of those are very difficult they're quite difficult linguistically and it's quite difficult to see how a lot of them um, unfold in the old testament and and so kind of I I like the idea of them having a um, a more long-term sort of reverberation something else that sort of strikes me as interesting is that some of the structure of the genealogies in one chronicles has this sort of slightly temple-like feel to it Um, you get, for instance, um, the Levitical genealogies, um, central, and, and they're kind of um, flanked on either side by six tribal genealogies which kind of ascend to them. And, and so you have a, a rather throne-like um, structure there, at least, with the, the six steps leading up to um, the throne. And there, there are some other sort of temple-like, there's almost a menorah-like structure in, in them, and I think we might have gone into that some in our genealogies but there, there seems to be this way in which um genealogical um or, or tribal things start to get a bit more uh, temple-like as the old testament unfolds and I, I would like the idea of james picking some of that up
0: here right and to, to put some meat on the bones there for those who are listening that don't yet have the commentary um though i'm sure everyone listening has the commentary right um So to look at the tribe of Reuben, you know, Reuben in Genesis is described as being unstable as water. He's unstable as water, and he's the firstborn. And then right at the beginning of the book of James, you have James um, saying the one who doubts is like the waves of the sea who is tossed about. Right. And then towards the end of the book, if you match that with the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin is called a ravenous wolf. He t- tried to take what was not rightfully his and he later went to war against Judah. And then there at the very end of the book of James, these Benjamin like brothers, as Jeff says, uh, are wandering from the truth. Uh, and James says, my brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. So yeah, that's, that's just really fascinating stuff. We can go ahead now. Uh, I think that was a, a helpful discussion and, and jump into, uh, the first verse. We'll see, we'll see how far we get in this uh, in this first episode. Uh, I think there's a lot to discuss here. Um, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. And then a, a greetings. Um, so I'd love to look, uh, Jeff, you've already uh, hopefully dived into this a little bit already, but I'd love to look at a theology of, of this name, of the name of James or Jacob. It's really fascinating to think of all of the similarities, you know, one of which being, you know, Jacob and his mother, you know, uh, dupe his father and his brother and receive the blessing that was rightfully theirs. And then he's driven out in fear. And then uh, as he's driven out, there are blessings to come his way. We could see also in this context, the Jews who have not come under the lordship of Christ, the Jews have been duped, just like Esau. And these Jewish Christians are those who have rightfully received what is theirs in Christ Jesus. But yet like, like Jacob, they have been dispersed. They have been sent out. And the, we know that he is going to, Jacob is going to seek to, or James is going to seek to encourage them. And I think, can we say that some of that encouragement is going to come because of the knowledge that these people have of these stories that we find in Genesis 27 and elsewhere?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. Yeah. Um... So, for example, I mean, just to skip back to this uh, section, uh, the structuring, according to the 12 tribes, you have uh, Simeon and Levi, uh, sons of Jacob, one of the two tribes, 12 tri- two of the 12 tribes. And they're angry, violent men who use the covenant uh, for their own personal vengeance. And that's also something here um jacob in genesis does not even though he is uh, driven out banished from his home and goes up to Badana ram with his uncle he is not a violent man he does not strike back he does not uh, fight back actually he is patient and he uses wisdom in order to overcome and eventually of course he is restored to the land, and, and uh, finds out that all of this it was God wrestling with him, God maturing him to the point where he could uh, be a prince, be Israel, prince, uh, prince of God. And so these sons of Jacob, here, sons of James, at the time of their banishment from Jerusalem, ought to be able to reflect on how their forefather, their patriarch, Jacob, how he led his sons or how he gave an example to his sons of how to behave under duress in, in, under tribulation when he was mistreated and unjustly uh, uh, treated by his his uncle. So these, these Christians, these early Christians are being unjustly treated um, and pursued by their oppressors so they can learn from Jacob. Just as you said, Brian, I think that's very good point.
3: And there are a number of paradigms of being dispersed or sent away that we find within the Old Testament, and particularly the narrative of the patriarchs. We might also think about the way that Joseph is mistreated by his brothers, and then ends up suffering and experiencing persecution of various kinds. And then he's vindicated by the Lord, and he becomes the means by which his family is delivered. And many of those themes, I think, that we See here in the counsel that James gives to the recipients of this epistle are very clearly exemplified within the life of Joseph. We might also think about other forms of dispersal, the way in which the exile represents a a period where Israel is sent away from the land and then the hope that they be brought back is fulfilled. And it's one of the things that we see within the prophets that promise that they will. Be brought back to the land and the Lord will vindicate them. We might think about the way in which Levi as a tribe is scattered throughout the land. And they are, in another way, they're scattered among the peoples, a means by which they will be a sort of priestly people among the nations
1: in order to bring those nations to Christ. And not only are they scattered and will achieve some sort of victory with the Lord's help, but also their enemies are judged. So every time there's an exile, uh, there's going to be eventually, if you wait for it, God's judgment on enemies. Uh, that's true with Egypt. It's true with uh, with Eli and Phine- Hophni and Phineas, who who really commit abominations, and so the Lord has to leave. Uh, but he, he he comes back and he'll, he'll judge them or with, with the exile, as you mentioned, there's going to be a judgment on the enemies of God. And here too, this is one of the things that James says is don't just be patient and wait. Um, And it's not just a character building thing. It is that, but also wait for the Lord's justice. Don't try to implement it yourself. Uh, The rich in this book are the theocratically rich they're the ones who oppress them. They're the ones who blaspheme the name uh, by which you are called, chapter 2. They're the ones who have all the gold and silver, uh, and that's temple language. They're the ones who have the robes of authority, chapter 2. They're the ones who have signet rings. Uh, they're the ones who are not uh, recognizing or paying, quote, unquote, the harvesters that the Lord has sent out in the field. Uh, they're the ones who've condemned uh, the righteous one, being Jesus, and also them, uh, but remember, Jesus didn't resist them, and neither should you. You should trust that the Lord will bring judgment, just as He has in the past.
2: Right, and just to pick on some of the uh, pick up on some of those ideas, Jeff. I mean, the exile, um, at least in the Old Testament, is, is often described in these kind of um, sowing, uh, sowing like terms, and and people being um, scattered in in the sense of um sown and, and planted in new territory and um seems to me that this idea of the the dispersion in in james could have that um sense to it too the the spreading and and, and the scattering of seed abroad james is going to sort of pick up on this imagery of um uh, the farmer waiting for the fruit of the earth isn't he at, at the end of the um uh epistle and being patient and so on and um with that in mind, I, I just had a quick comment on on this idea of the the dispersion. Um, quite a few translations that I looked at um, in verse one of, of James have two "to the twelve tribes in uh, the dispersion." What what is that? an say diaspora," and and so it, it would seem like quite a natural um, reference to the diaspora. Now we're talking about it in terms of something that would be a less settled idea, i.e. Um, early converts who have been scattered um, abroad but I guess I don't see a reference to the diaspora as sort of fatal to or, or, or exclusive of that idea just because in New Testament terms you can have the idea of an Israel within Israel can't you like a converted Israel within the um, ethnic nation of Israel and I'm not averse to the idea that James could uh, be using a term like the diaspora to refer to um, uh, a settled um, uh, part of the church. You know, Uh, so, um, yeah, I I don't know if you've got sort of comments on that notion of a diaspora particularly. So, James,
1: that's uh, certainly possible that uh, the addressees here would be possibly those who were present at Pentecost. And, you know, heard Peter's message, uh, trusted, believed, were baptized, and then went back, back into their, uh, the lands that they, you know, lived in. And so James is writing to them. Uh, I guess the question I have is, uh, Did was there a persecution, like one that appears to be addressed by James, to those folks Uh Eventually, there would be with, you know, especially with when Paul comes around. But that would be my big question is, uh, if James is written early, and I think there's good arguments for that. Would there be the kinds of trials and sufferings and tribulation that James that seems to be addressing also in the dispersion of Christian Jewish Christians after Pentecost? Does that make sense? Yeah, it,
2: it it does make sense. Um, I mean, I I think what I was trying to raise is that even if you take this um, reference to, let's call it the diaspora for now, um, it well, okay. So even if you translate James one one as a reference to the diaspora, I guess the point I was trying to make is that I still think that you could take that to as a reference to Christians who have been scattered from. Jerusalem in the very near past, you know, in the days of the early church and James could be using the diaspora in a more local church specific sense than the way in which we're used to talking about the diaspora, i.e. just
0: Jews all over the empire for whatever reason.
1: Yes. Good. I think that's helpful. Yes.
0: Very good. I I think uh, I'd like to at least make one more comment before we wrap this up. Is there anything to, you know, there's different dispersions and, and drivings out in the scriptures. Uh, Obviously, when we look at Adam, he was driven out due to unfaithfulness. Israel was sent into exile due to unfaithfulness. Um, But then you also have dispersions and being sent out due to faithfulness. So you have Jesus obviously being crucified. And then is there anything to be seen here that these, these folks have been faithful to the coming Messiah. And this letter is meant to sharpen them in a bunch of ways, but it's also meant to encourage them. Right out the gate, he's going to say, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet these trials. And so he's saying, You're there's there's a way to view this as an encouragement that you haven't been, yeah, you're not suffering due to unfaithfulness. You've made you've made the right move here. You've come into the kingdom of the Lord and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And though things, though you may be anxious and angry. And wanting to take things into your own hands, um, settle down because uh, you're in the you're in the right lane here. You're in the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's no reason to fear.
3: I mean, one way to understand it would be to relate it to the image from the Sermon on the Mount of the disciples as salt of the earth, they're scattered and they're sown um, around, but this is for the good of the people that they're. Within and among, they are the ones that give the earth its saltiness. And in one way, we might think about their being cast out or driven out. We might also just think about the way that they are um, spread out as a result of this, that they're not just driven out from some center, but they're spread out among the whole. And so every single part of the world is being touched by um, the influence of Christ and his people experiencing the light of Christ in his people that is this city set on the hill but many many cities set on many different hills and salt that's scattered throughout the whole earth not just within the land of Israel.
2: That's helpful Alistair and like an Old Testament backdrop we could think of there perhaps is again the book of Jeremiah where towards the end you know as the fall of Jerusalem approaches the call is, is not to stay and defend the city, but to um, you know hand yourself over to Nebuchadnezzar, who, who God refers to as, as uh, my servant, you know, and 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 to go out and then to go into Babylon and seek the good of, of the city and and so on. And so you have like the image of the good figs and the and the bad figs, and and the good ones are those who who get carried away um, and go to Babylon, and, and the bad ones are, are the bad figs of those that. Uh, uh, stay behind so you, it, there's there's some old testament sort of um imagery behind that potentially
1: yeah that's all helpful too there doesn't seem to be any sense in james that he wants to communicate to these people that somehow their suffering their trials their tribulations is the result of their unfaithfulness or their sin uh, and this is you know good wisdom literature kind of theme uh, is that uh, not every not every bad thing that happens to you is a result of God's tit for tat judgment on your sin. Of course, that's the whole theme of the book of Job, uh, and James is going to refer to Job later on. But uh, Brian, you 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 mentioned this is they should not think that somehow this uh, trouble they're undergoing is a sign of God's displeasure or that something has gone wrong. Uh, and I do think that James continually alluding to either the Sermon on the Mount or other passages in Matthew or what is circulating as Matthew now at the time James is writing. That serves to ground what they are experiencing in Jesus' words, and not just Jesus' words and predictions, but Jesus' life even. So, you know, Jesus says, anyone come after me, let him deny himself and take this cross and follow me. Well, That's what's happening in the lives of the Christians. Uh, And uh, so Jesus also is a, uh, the path that Jesus took, the path that Jesus took to maturity and then the vindication uh, is the same path that they're on. They're in Christ. They're following after him following after Jesus doesn't just mean, you know, listening to what he teaches and, 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 uh, Trying to obey him it means actually uh, being being conformed to his image. So as he learned obedience through the things he suffered, so and then once made mature, uh, he was ordained by God to be you know the priest king. And this is their end too. This is their telos. Uh, And again, you like I think James and Alister said. Earlier, there's something of a riddle. Characters they have to work through this. It's not, it doesn't just put this on the surface and say, "Well, you're like Jesus. You're being conformed to His image." He he makes them dig a little bit. He makes them think mm-hmm. about it. Uh, mm-hmm. He he helps them to uh, uh, to remember the words of Jesus. Remember, these people don't have any Bibles. They don't have any scrolls. Uh, all they've heard of Jesus is what has been proclaimed to them in their uh, local assemblies and the synagogues and probably maybe portions of Matthew being read to them. Uh, And so um, James is stirring them up to remember those words. There's a lot in here about the words of the Lord also in chapter, end of chapter one and chapter two.
3: Mm
0: -hmm.
3: I do find it interesting to see just how much of a flavor of the teaching of Christ, the teaching of James within this book has. And people can, I I think, often um, get the impression that Jesus teaches within his ministry. It's a secondary aspect, very much a secondary aspect of what's going on with the Gospels. And then in the epistles, we have a very different sort of teaching. It's not teaching in the same way as Christ was. It's teaching about what Christ has achieved and done. And so when we're reading Paul, that's what we're encountering. But within James, for instance, and I think also within Paul, but most notably within James, we have something of a teaching which has a distinctive flavor of the teaching of Christ that we encounter throughout his ministry. There is not a cessation of that teaching. It's not as if Paul started a very alien sort of movement based upon Christ that is somehow at odds with the way that Jesus himself taught in his earthly ministry. It's very much a continuation of it. It's reminding people of things that some of them might've heard with their own ears, following Christ around and his travels within Israel. And then others who had maybe been there at the very beginning of the ministry in Galilee and followed it down, they're being recalled these teachings that they first heard on the lips of Jesus in the teaching of James here.
0: Right, and I think that's a tremendous encouragement to these hearers of this letter as it circulates among these new Jewish Christians. Again, they're in a difficult position in life, and yet they have a word from Jacob. They have a word from the Jacob James who is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not, as Jeff, you just said, just a kind of, you know, God will take care of you simple type of message, but God comes uh, through his servant, uh, James, Jacob, a name that they would recognize and that would call up all sorts of associations from the scriptures they've heard all their life. And it would come with weight. And again, as Jeff mentioned, it can help them to dig around in their heart and in their life and in their circumstances and find new ways to follow the Lord that they've Begun, uh, begun to follow. So this letter really is an encouragement to them to continue on in the path they've started, not to turn back, similar to Hebrews. It's, it's less warning-driven, but it is uh, definitely full of encouragements to keep going. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of The Theopolis Podcast.